Good morning, friends. It's good to have you here today. So thankful that we can gather around uh, worshiping the Word. We can uh, sing together, pray together, read together, and now hear from the Scriptures together. If you have your Bible still open to Colossians 1, uh, the page to your left is Philippians 4, and we're going to be in Philippians 4, 1 through 9. This morning we're going to focus on verses 8 and 9 particularly, but I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 9 at this time. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So we're going to examine these things today. And my prayer is that you'll be able to understand them and apply them to your Christian life. Uh, I, I desire so much that, that you not just hear what I'm saying, but understand and apply um, these things to your life. All of us have heard Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 before. Have we not? We've heard, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, and so forth. It's so popular. Um, whether you're Christian or secular, this, this verse has been displayed on Scripture art all over the place, hasn't it? I mean, we see this kind of thing displayed in restaurants, family rooms, colleges, doctor's offices, maybe even hardware stores. I don't know. It's, it's everywhere. Um, this verse is full of great and virtuous thoughts. It's, it's even poetic, isn't it, the verse 8? Some commentators suggest that the first few verses in Philippians 9 are actually an unrelated list of Christian virtues that we're to pursue as Christians. We're to be happy, we're to be reasonable people, we're not to be anxious. Others argue that verse 8 is a practical guide to decision-making, to self-help, or even psychology. I was surprised at how many well-known commentators basically said that verse 8 was simply a guide to live a more fruitful Christian life. Norman Vincent Peale, in his great bestseller, The Power of Positive Thinking, said, The way to happiness is to keep your heart free from hate and your mind from worry. Live simply, expect little, give much, scatter sunshine, forget self, think of others. Try this for a week and you'll be surprised. Sounds kind of like Philippians 4.8, doesn't it? So is verse... Eight, Paul's version of the power of positive thinking? 
after all this gospel, now he's going to revert to the power of positive thinking? Is Paul saying that all you need to do is think about these six things and all your problems will go away? Well, in verse 8, we have a bit of a curveball from the Apostle Paul. And uh, if we didn't know better, it seems like Paul is suggesting the power of positive thinking as a way to a better life now. If you'll just think about these things, your life will improve greatly. He would fit right in with the prosperity gospel preachers we're familiar with whose proponents emphasize the positive message to the neglect of any talk of sin and judgment. The power of positive thinking has been around for a long time, and maybe Paul's words here affirm that philosophy of ministry. Maybe we've been wrong all along here at Sun Valley. If you're not thinking, if you're not thinking biblically and carefully, you might be persuaded to think that Paul is a power of positive thinking preacher. Would any of you be convinced if I were to say that's what this is? This is Paul's version of the power of positive thinking? I hope not. It's abundantly obvious from even this study in Philippians, just going back one chapter, that Paul is not a power of positive thinking apostle or preacher. So what is Paul saying here then? This is secular sounding. This isn't the list of Christian virtues in Galatians 5. What is this? We'd better hope, Sun Valley, that this isn't Paul's power of positive thinking. This better be something else. Now, is it wrong to think about positive things? Of course not. It's good. It could even be helpful. I'm certain it is. But a list of positive things to think about at the end of an exhortation to stand firm as joyful gospel partners and pursue harmony in the church hardly seems like the logic that Paul would use. It's out of place, isn't it? That's why I call this a curveball. This verse, there are certainly good thoughts and virtues that should be evident in the Christian life, but I want you to consider that Paul here included verse 8 at this point in the letter, not to confuse us about where to stand or what to, where to put our hope, which is on the gospel, but he's included this because it's critical to developing and maintaining meaningful and harmonious relationships in the church and in the home. That's why he included this verse. As likely that this list of virtues is acceptable to both Christians and non-Christians, I want to suggest that the things that Paul emphasizes in these verses are actually reflections, his reflections, on the gospel. And thinking about these, these reflections in gospel terms builds up and nurtures joyful, harmonious Christian relationships, which we all want. If, in fact that always rejoicing produces stronger relationships, as I taught last week from verse 4, if being reasonable develops harmony, as it says in verse 5, if not being anxious creates unity in the Christian home and church, as it says in verse 6, then it would seem that verse 8 here, in the same context of Paul's letter here, is his effort to get Yodia and Sintichi and I think the Holy Spirit's intent is to get you and me to get along harmoniously. This is the context that this verse falls in. And as you know, context is king, isn't it, when it comes to Bible interpretation. This verse is about the gospel. This verse is not Paul's version of 
positive thinking or the power of it. If you are what you think about, if you are what you think about, which is the contention of the teacher in Proverbs, then in verse 8, it is highly likely that Paul is continuing his exhortation to the Philippians in order to work the gospel into the fiber of their minds so that it will affect every area of their lives. This isn't some unrelated list of virtues that you ought to pursue and might make your life better. No, this is the gospel applied to the heart of the Christian so that they will reflect a Christ-like relationship to other believers in their life so that they will honor God, that they will exalt Christ in their godly relationships, harmonious relationships. The gospel priorities that we see here in verse 8 are the things that must saturate the Christian mind. Sun Valley Church, I want the things that Paul mentions here about the gospel in verse 8 to saturate your daily thinking. I mean saturate. If they do, we will be at peace with one another, as it says in verse 7. And the peace of God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That peace will be ours. And in between the peace of God in verse 7, look at your Bibles. He mentions the peace of God comes on the tail of no anxiety, on the tail of being joyful, on the tail of being reasonable. The peace of God in verse 7 and the peace of God in verse 9 sandwich verse 8. Did you see that? Did you recognize that? The peace of God, the God of peace, what lies in between those two things is verse 8. Gospel virtues the things that make up the gospel, the things that should fill our minds. Verse 8. So in between the peace of God and the God of peace is the key to joyful, satisfying, productive, God-glorifying Christian relationships. This is gospel-saturated thinking, verse 8. That's what this is. The gospel must be the lens through which we see everything, and most importantly, through which we see our relationships with one another. Can you say that you view me, you view the person next to you, the person across the table from you at home through a gospel lens? That's Paul's call here. That's what he's after. In fact, genuine, the genuine Christian is the person who thinks like this, not the person who, who claims Christ because they prayed a prayer at junior high camp. This is the gospel Christian. Paul's describing the Christian mind here in verse 8. I want you to think about these things and examine your own mind. Is this what saturates me? Are my relationships based on, guided by these truths in verse 8? If they are, I want to promise you along with the Apostle Paul that the peace of God and the God of peace will guide you into harmonious relationships. So let's, let's look at our outline. If you have an outline, in your bulletin, you'll see that our first point begins with Roman numeral number four. That's because we covered Roman numeral one, two, and three last week. This is the second half of a long sermon, okay? So, point four here, found in verse eight, is to think correctly. If you want to have harmonious, gospel-centered, God-glorifying relationships, you must think correctly. There's a philosophy of parenting that says we want our kids to develop their own way of thinking so that they will become their own unique individuals. Have you heard that? 
they say we, we don't want to brainwash our kids. We want them to grow into what they naturally would be without the influence of our social or religious baggage. You've heard these things. Well, Paul wouldn't agree with that on any level for any Christian in parenting, politics, or ping pong. Paul would disagree with that wholeheartedly, in other words. We are, as Christian parents, to be brainwashers. That's your job. That's what you're called to do. It is a command of Scripture. God expects it. Paul would be roundly criticized in our culture for writing this letter that we're studying, the book of Philippians. He would be accused of being parochial, biased, narrow-minded, insensitive, naive, Think of all the things he has said in this book, this letter. Unacceptable in our culture, he would be labeled politically incorrect, wouldn't he? Of course, he would embrace that because that's every single one of his letters. Every time he picked up his, his pen, he dipped it in the inkwell of political, political incorrectness. That's how he wrote. That's how he thought. Telling people how to think politically or past, um, parentally, or anyway, is not acceptable in our day. To tell people, you need to think like this, is offensive, isn't it, in our culture? Yes. But here in verse 8, that's exactly what Paul does. He comes right out and says, this is how you need to think. Look at the end of the verse. Think like this. Think on these things. Think about this. And what does that mean? It means to evaluate, consider, calculate, carefully examine. It's not a lighthearted or superficial passing thought. Paul wants you and me to think just like this. So they would say, you're telling me how to think? Paul would say, absolutely. Well, why? Why do you think you need to tell me how to think? You ever had this conversation with your teenager? It should sound familiar to you parents who have teenagers. Well, why do you think you have to tell me how to think? Well, because you're a sinner. That's why. That's, why, that's what Paul would say. I, I need to tell you how to think because... You think the wrong way. This is what it means to be a sinner, born into sin. Your brain is depraved, and it thinks the wrong way. And because your brain thinks the wrong way, what follows? You act the wrong way, which is why we have dysfunctional relationships. We think and act the wrong way, and it affects how we relate to one another. Paul doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. You parents don't want that of your children. So what do you do? You tell them how to think, right? This is what Paul's doing. This is what sanctification is, isn't it? It's, it's shaping your thinking and your acting to reflect the thinking and acting of Jesus Christ. Isn't that sanctification? Being conformed to the image of Jesus? Yes. This is what sanctification is. This is what parenting is. This is what Paul is talking about. Shape your thinking like this. Think this way. Jesus taught that because of sins, our minds have been utterly affected, right? You remember Mark chapter 7, verse 20 through 23, Jesus said this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. This is why Paul wants us to think certain ways. This is why you parents want your children to think certain ways, so they don't turn out to be sensual, deceitful, envious, slanderous murderers. <laughs> this is what Paul wants, this is what God wants, this is what you good parents want. 
some will say, some have said, being indoctrinated isn't free thinking. Can I suggest to you that it is the freest possible way any human can think to conform their thinking to the thinking of their creator? Isn't that the most freeing thing? Isn't the opposite of that? Isn't thinking like the world the most enslaving thing? This is what Paul is conquering here. This is what the gospel conquers. Jesus said, what's he say about the truth? Anybody remember? What does the truth do? Sets you free. It doesn't make you captive. The truth sets you free. Paul wants to affect how we think. So, filling our mind with God and his thoughts, the things listed in verse 8, is the only accurate way to think about reality. To continue to follow the thinking of the world is actually the most enslaving thing we can possibly do. And so, we don't want to do that. What is, how does Paul begin this list? What's, it, what's the first thing we're to think about? What's it say in your Bible? Think about things that are true. Why do you think he starts there? Do you think he got a long list and he just, ah, put this one down? No. He starts with truth because without truth, all these other things are worthless. They hold no power. Doesn't matter how commendable or honorable something is or someone is, if there's no truth involved, it's a waste of brain power. And so he begins with this important virtue of thinking on what is true. The, the gospel begins at this point of truth, doesn't it? The gospel doesn't begin anywhere else. It begins with God, as Pastor Rick said earlier. God is where the gospel begins. The unsaved mind, according to the Apostle Paul, is depraved. Romans 1, 1 Timothy 6. The mind of the unsaved is hostile to God. It's foolish, hard-hearted, blinded, futile, and ignorant, according to Paul's letters. He actually wrote those things down. This is how we are. This is why Paul is so politically incorrect. The first thing everyone must do to be saved is to understand the truth of the gospel. You're not saved if you don't understand the truth of the gospel, which is why, you know, Barna's research that says 50% of the uh, people, evangelical people in the United States believe that truth is relative. Evangelicals, 50% of us believe that the truth is relative. I'm a little bit confused as to what the gospel is, if, if it's relative. But that, in fact, is what we read. But we understand in the Bible that, from the Bible that the truth begins, or the gospel begins with truth, and the truth is God. God is gathering worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. No truth, no worship. No truth, no relationship with God. And so the Holy Spirit comes along and opens our eyes to the truth, and then conversion follows. You know why the gospel is attractive to you if you know Jesus? Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit has come and changed your heart. It's not because you've become smarter and read A.W. Pink. No, it's because the Holy Spirit has come along and converted your soul, changed your heart, regenerated you, given you a new spirit, all of a sudden, the gospel becomes attractive. This is what the gospel does. This is what the Holy Spirit does through the gospel. Jesus said that God's word is truth. Psalm 119, remember that thing? Psalm 119, verse 151, says that God's word is true. 
And the Bible is true because God is true. Thinking on what is true is primarily a call to saturate your mind with God's word. So when Paul says, think on what is true, he is calling us to think, to examine, to process God's word in our minds and hearts. All the following virtues listed in verse 8 flow out of the revealed truth of God's word. Truth ties all the others together here, just like the belt of truth cinched everything up in Paul's mind when he was describing the, the Christian armor in Ephesians 6. And the belt of truth ties it all together. You remember what Pilate asked Jesus when he was under judgment? You remember that? He said, what is truth? Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? That's the same question that people are asking today, isn't it? What is truth? Postmodernism argues that truth is relative. Well, maybe Pilate was a postmodern. Maybe so. Not sure. But here is where this research that Barna, Barna had of 50% of evangelical Christians believing the truth is relative is stunning to me. How can you actually say you're a Christian and say that what I believe may or may not be true? If you believe that truth is relative, you're not a Christian. Period. There has to be absolute truth for you to be saved. For us to understand the gospel. For, under, for us to understand God. If it's relative, what are we doing? We're shooting in the dark. I covered this a bit last week, but I want to I ask you to consider why Paul included this verse here, verse 8, at this point in the letter. If it's not a list of, of the power of positive thinking, what is it? Paul's asking us to apply the gospel to every part of our lives, especially our relationships. So how does, how does this idea of truth promote harmony in your relationships? Well, like I said, I, I spoke about this last week, but gospel truth goes a long way to bring harmony into Christian relationships. I told you that last week the only door into the family of God is grace. Remember that? No one gets in by merit. No one gets in by status. The only way you and I enter the kingdom of God into the family of God is by grace. That's, that's a basic element of the gospel. That's a basic gospel truth. And what does that do? What, this truth of the only entrance into the kingdom of God, the family of God is grace, is it, it eliminates pride. It eliminates jealousy. It eliminates envy. Now let me ask you something concerning harmony and relationships. If you could get rid of all pride, all envy, all jealousy, how would your relationships go? This is what the gospel does. It eliminates those things. You have nothing to be proud of. You got into the family of God the same way I did, by grace, not merit. <laughs> Friends, gospel truth humbles us because we can't earn salvation and we don't deserve it. But gospel truth also, at the very same time as humbling us, builds us up and assures us that we are genuinely and personally loved by God. That's gospel truth. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is true, and it dramatically affects our relationships to one another. Think about the truth of the gospel the next time you're in a squabble and see what happens to your pride. Think about the love of God and why it came to you the next time you're in a squabble with your spouse and see if that doesn't do anything to your pride. I guarantee you it will. The next thing Paul says in verse 8, after he says, think on the true things, he says, think on whatever is honorable. So how can thinking about honorable things improve my relationships, your relationships? Well, the idea behind this word, honorable, is awe-inspiring, or to think about things that inspire you to a place of awe. When Paul says honorable, that's what he means, to cause you to revere or worship something or someone. That's what the word honorable means. It's the opposite of mundane or routine thinking. It's honorable thinking. It's elevated. It's lofty thinking. Instead of thinking this trivial and frivolous things, think on honorable, significant, lofty things. Paul's point in using this word in verse 8 is to encourage thinking on significant theological truths that prompt worship and praise. Instead of dwelling on trivial things that are usually the root or at the root of all struggling relationships, trivial things, spend some time digging into the significant gospel matters, things that cause you to worship, things that bring you awe, things that cause you to revere God and his word, Reread Colossians 1 and see if it doesn't do that for you. Read Ephesians 1. Read Psalm 139. Read Isaiah 53 and see if that doesn't cause a, a spirit of awe and reverence and worship in your heart and mind. I want to suggest that usually reading and meditating over one of these type of chapters in the Bible brings your struggling, struggling relationships into focus. It clarifies things. So here's, here's an assignment. Spouses, the next time you've got it out for your spouse, before you have a conversation with him or her, read Colossians 1. Just once. Read Colossians 1, then go talk to your wife or your husband. I guarantee you it will change the approach of that conversation. The next word that Paul says is right. He says, think on things that are right. He doesn't mean right versus wrong. What Paul means is right in the sense of righteous. In fact, this word is translated in many other places in the New Testament as righteous or just. That's how it was translated back in chapter 3 of verse 9. Turn there with me. Philippians 3, 9. And I want you to see how the translators translated this very same word a half a chapter earlier. This word right in verse 9 was translated like this, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This word is translated righteousness all over the place in the New Testament. It's a very important gospel word, wouldn't you say? Is there a more important gospel word than righteousness? Huh? It's up there with grace, isn't it? It's at the top of the list. Paul says think about those things. Thinking about righteousness, the righteousness of God in Christ towards us, affects 
how you get along with your children and your coworkers. This is important stuff. We have no righteousness in ourselves, do we? What is required for you and I to be righteous, to be acceptable to God? What? Isn't it to have the righteousness of Christ flooding on us? That's the only way. Our salvation requires God to grant the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. We're told in Ephesians 1 that every spiritual blessing is a gift from God through Christ and his righteousness. So how does thinking on the righteousness of Christ help you towards harmonious Christian relationships? In many ways. In many ways. Let me give you just a few. Examine your own sin nature in contrast to Jesus's perfect nature. Examine your own nature, sin nature, in contrast to Jesus's perfect divine nature. Does that humble you when you think of that? It did Paul, again, referring you back to Philippians 3. Consider the gift of Jesus's righteousness to you, an undeserving sinner. Does, does that humble you? Do you know what humility does to personal relationships? If you don't, let me tell you, it heals them. Humility heals broken relationships every time. Humility causes you to consider the possibility that you may be at fault and carry some of the responsibility for this relational rift, which is usually the last place you go, isn't it? Until you sit down with a mediator or some counselor, will you admit that, okay, I did have some minor role in this problem with my spouse? He says, think about righteousness. It'll affect how you get along with your spouse, your coworkers, your children. Then he says, think about what is pure. You see that word there in the list? This word is used in the Bible to describe that which is holy, morally clean, undiluted, undefiled. That's what Paul says this word means. How does that word relate to the gospel? This isn't hard for you gospel-centered people. Purity is central to the character of Christ, isn't it? I mean, how valid would Christ's atoning sacrifice be if he was defiled, if he were sinful? Would his atoning sacrifice on Calvary be atoning if he were sinful? No. It is required that he go to the cross sin-free, blemish-free, perfect. As the Old Testament sacrifice had to be, so must Christ, called the blameless Lamb of God, without blemish. This is a central gospel truth, which is why Paul lists it here. It brings to mind the imputed purity of Christ given to every true believer. It brings to mind the importance of holiness in the life of every follower of Jesus. You know what that means, right? When you follow Jesus, you're becoming like him. You're doing what he does. You're thinking what he is. So not only has God granted us the purity of Jesus that makes us clean and acceptable before him, but he is in the business of actually transforming us on a daily basis in practical ways that show slowly but surely more and more Christ-likeness. So how does purity, how does purity in your relationships, pick any relationship you want, 
How does your personal holiness, your personal purity, affect the health and harmony of that relationship? You know the answers to this. You, you, uh, you've been sitting here for a while. You've heard these things before. If envy and jealousy are impurity, are they not? Are envy and jealousy impurity? Yes? Okay. Uh, and God is sanctifying that out of us. We will be less envious and less jealous at the end of the day than we were at the beginning of the day. Right? That's what sanctification does. He's purifying us. He's, he's got us in the pot and boiling out all the impurities. Bitterness and rivalry, rivalry will not dominate our relationships anymore. Why? Because you're being sanctified. It's, it's getting boiled out of your life. We'll have fewer obstacles to overcome because we're becoming more pure like Jesus. If I'm less bitter, less angry, less impatient, it's an amazing thing, but me and my wife get along better. Look at the next one. I love the next one in the list. Lovely. Think about things that are lovely. Anything that is lovely, think about that. This is the only place in the New Testament that this word is used. So it's a unique challenge to interpret. But it, it carries the idea of sweetness, graciousness, gentleness, things that promote brotherly love. Think about those things, Paul's saying. The idea that I think Paul wants his readers to embrace here is that he wants us to be the aroma of Christ to the people around us. The loveliness of Christ, be a picture of that. Be the aroma of Jesus. We are to pursue the loveliness of Jesus. Samuel Rutherford, a long-gone Puritan, wrote a wonderful little book called The Loveliness of Christ. Oh, it is so worth reading. John Flavel, another Puritan who's long gone, also wrote a very moving work called Altogether Lovely, which is basically an expansion of, exposition of, a phrase in the Song of Solomon. So you think I wax long, John Flavel took one phrase from the Song of Solomon and wrote a 12-chapter book on it. The loveliness of Christ. Christ is altogether lovely. So uh, the bride in the Song of Solomon uh, called her fiancé altogether lovely. Now, has your parents let you read Song of Solomon yet? Or have you gotten to that age? You, have you been able to read that? Well... A, there's a bride, one of the characters is a bride in the Song of Solomon who is in love with her fiancé. And he, this bride calls her fiancé, her future husband, altogether lovely. Flavel takes that, expounds on it, and he wrote this at the beginning, in the introduction. He is altogether lovely, referring to Christ, the every part to be desired, he is lovely when taken together and in every part, as if she had said, look on him in what respect or, or particular you wish. Cast your eye upon this lovely object and view him any way. Turn him in your serious thoughts, whichever way you wish. Consider his person, his offices, his works, or any other thing belonging to him. You will find him altogether lovely. 
There is nothing disagreeable in him. There is nothing lovely without him. That's the introduction, a small portion of the introduction, speaking on the loveliness of Christ. And Paul says, that's what I want flowing out of you, out of every pore of your being. I want you to be the aroma of Christ. Have the loveliness of Christ wash over your mind, spill out of your heart in every relationship. What Paul says will affect harmonious Christian relationships are thoughts on that lovely Christ and those things reflected in our lives. When you dwell on the loveliness of Jesus, what happens? His loveliness rubs off on you. And when the loveliness of Christ rubs off on you, I see it. I experience it. Which is, you remember in Acts 5, when John and Peter stood before the Sanhedrin, and you know what they said? They were amazed and could tell that these men had been with Jesus. Acts 13, uh, maybe it was 4, Acts 4, 13. Uh, can people tell you've been with Jesus? They ought to be. They ought to be able to see it clearly. Ah, he's been with Jesus. And I don't mean, you know, people that may not know you. I'm talking about your, your family. You've been with Jesus, haven't you, Dad? Mom. You've been with Jesus, haven't you, son? This is what Paul is saying here. Think on those things that are lovely. Think on our Savior. Can people see Jesus in you? Are you the aroma of Christ in your relationships? And then he ends this list by saying, let's think on things that are commendable. Of course, this refers to those things that are of good report, commendable, um, honorable, highly regarded. Our thoughts as joyful gospel partners must be elevated by Scripture to be fixed on substantial things, commendable things, things that aren't of the mundane. When, when I think of commendable things my, in my own mind, uh, I think of things like the glory of Christ. I know this is a, a practice that I've learned a while back when my spiritual life seems to be adrift and I seem to have lost my passion for Christ, I pick up a copy of John Owen's book called The Glory of Christ and just spend a few minutes reading on it and it restores my soul almost immediately. It's commendable. Is not our Savior commendable? commendable? Are not the truths of Scripture commendable? The condescension of God the Son uh, the perfect life of Christ, the grace of God towards undeserving sinners, are these things commendable? Yes, yes, and yes is the answer. Think on those things. How does this produce harmony in your relationships? Well, maybe I should go back to Philippians 2 and preach 2 through 8 again. This is Christ's stuff. The example of Jesus' humility, condescension, selflessness were the first thing that Paul mentioned in his letter to bring about harmony in the church in Philippi. Be like Jesus. Paul seems to run out of time or he realizes that he could go on and on for a long time and so he tells his secretary, uh, let's just summarize this with these concluding remarks. Think on things that are, let's see here, excellent and praiseworthy. 
That's how he summarized it. He didn't mention holiness. He could have said that in that part of the gospel thinking, holiness. He didn't mention it. There's, a, there's many things that he didn't mention, and they fall under the umbrella of excellent things, praiseworthy things. Let's think on those things also. In other words, have all of the gospel wash over your mind, saturate your heart. All things that are excellent in Christ, praiseworthy in God, think on those things. The apostle Peter thought that it was worthwhile mentioning the excellent things as it related to evangelism. But you, he said in 1 Peter 2.9, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of, excellences, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are the excellencies of Christ? I mean, we could have a show and tell up here, and each of you could probably come up with a different excellency, even to the 75th person. Our Savior is a multifaceted jewel. The excellencies of Christ includes all those things, which Paul didn't have the time or space to fill out in this verse. Periodically throughout the day, we should stop, take a mental picture of what we're thinking about at that moment, and evaluate whether or not those things are excellent and praiseworthy. If those things reflect verses 8 and 9. In soccer, I, I used to coach soccer out at West Valley High School, and uh, one of the things that used to frustrate the daylights out of me is when the players just didn't move. They didn't think about the game. They just were robots out there. Nothing happened because of it. In soccer, you have to move to find space, and the more space you find, the more time for possessing the ball you have. And if you possess the ball longer than the opponent, you're probably going to win the game. Okay? So in practice, the, my teams knew this. If I say freeze, you freeze. You're like, freeze. And, you, and I'd say, can you see the ball from where you're at? Well, I, I didn't know we're supposed to be watching the ball. Well, this is a game about a ball. Freeze. Freeze frame. Take a mental picture. Is your mind at that moment saturated with excellent things, with praiseworthy things? In the minute of your argument with your spouse, say, freeze, freeze. Can you see the ball? <laughs> Can you see the ball? You're not locking the ball either, right? That's how we would go with that. <laughs> yeah, there's no hope for our sin except Christ, right? Oh, boy. See, Paul wants us to think about the right things. He wants us to be saturated with the gospel. This isn't a power of positive thinking. This is an exposition of the gospel right in front of us. But he's not just concerned that we think correctly. He wants us to follow that up with action. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So you can't be content with just thinking about things and not doing. No, Paul practiced what he preached. Paul lived the gospel. The gospel saturated his mind and heart, and it flowed out of every pore of his body. He, he said, 
from the things I've taught you, from the things you've received from me, from the things you heard from me, from the things you saw in me. Obey, imitate, follow, continually practice these things. Don't give up. Don't give up. A young lady came up to me after the first service and said, hey, you know, I, I, I really do my best to try to think about these things, but then I get into a situation and I blow it, and be, as if I never thought about it. I says, but you'll get another chance tomorrow. <laughs> you'll get another chance tomorrow. Think all night about these things. And when that situation shows up again tomorrow, you may have better luck. Luck's the wrong word, but you know what I mean. The gospel-saturated mind of Paul affected everything in his life, and God has presented him to the church as a model to follow for us Christians. All the things that we've looked at as we've studied this wonderful letter to the Philippians, this letter that encourages joyful gospel partnership, and, and the way to encourage joyful gospel partnership is to avoid all these things that he's mentioned in the letter, including destructive relationships. Avoid those things. Stand firm in these things. We need to take these things to heart. Do you want to be a joyful gospel partner? Do you want your life to count? Do you want your relationships to be harmonious in the church and at home? Then you must apply the principles in this letter and particularly in verses 1 through 9. This must be what washes over your mind daily. The promise that Paul said would attend the habitual practice of this gospel Christianity is what? There at the end of verse 9. What will attend your efforts to live this way? To be gospel-saturated, joyful Christians, harmonious in your relationships is what? The God of peace. Not just the peace of God that's promised in verse 7 for those who avoid anxiety and those who uh, defer to one another, quick to yield, and those who are constantly joyful. No, that's, that will, peace of God will attend that. But if you will apply the gospel, as in found in verse 8, not just the peace of God, but the God of peace will be at your disposal. The God of peace will walk through you, will walk with you through your relationships. Oh, friends, God himself will come alongside each and every believer as we pursue obedience to the revealed will of God in the Scripture. He will strengthen us as we remind ourselves of the beauty of the gospel and the loveliness of Christ as we focus on gospel truth, it will affect how we get along, how we relate to each other. Let me pray for you, Christian friends. Heavenly Father, without your help, without the Holy Spirit's presence, these things would be futile. Our efforts would go nowhere. We would have no power but we have it in Christ, we have it in the Spirit, we have it in the Word, we have it in the fellowship of the saints. Here we are, Father, laying these things out before you, acknowledging our weakness in these areas. Fill our minds with gospel thoughts. Help us to think about these truths of the loveliness of Christ, of the truth of the gospel, of the, the commendable things, the honorable things, the, the peaceful things, the pure things. Help us be saturated with the gospel. God, bless our relationships. Fill them with joy and harmony, not just so that we'll have comfortable relationships, but so that you'll be glorified and our neighbors will be saved. Oh, God, do this for your glory and our good. Amen.